Welcome, everyone, to the sixth Market Insights podcast. Again, presented by me, Andrew McGregor, El Pavotti, FTBL on Twitter. I'm joined this week by our magnificent Luke Checo and the ever-industrious Jay Suchik. Guys. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Hello, hello. Good to be back indeed. So, guys, a bit busy week, as usual, at Market Insights. But this week, we're starting a new mini-series, if you will. It's a new podcast mini-series. We had this, uh, Gavin had this idea for us a number of weeks ago. We've fleshed it out since. So, basically, this is the start of our mini-series. That, as I say, may or not become a mini-series. It may become a longer, you know, more featured series if it gets picked up after this pilot. Each week, we'll be looking at, looking at teams at various levels who, at one point, were very successful in their history and have fallen on more barren times recently. We'll be looking at their history, their recent issues, and see if we can provide any solutions and strategies which we think will get them back to the long. Guys, either one of you answer this one. What is a sleeping giant in football terms to you two? Uh, I'll do my normal fence setting and say that's a, that's a very subjective question. <laughs> now, um, I think a sleeping giant really is someone who has had a myriad of past success. Um, AC Mladen are a great example of that. But as Andy said, have probably fallen on, fallen on more barren times in, in recent years, kind of over the last five years probably a club that has failed to reach their targets you know they don't have to be a a, a giant who was winning leagues and now isn't making the champions league as milano we're going to do in the series uh, different teams in different leagues so there is sleeping giants across uh, numerous tiers within the league structure and i think it's someone who basically if you say what their targets should have been over the last three four maybe even five years they've consistently failed to, to hit those targets for Again, a, a myriad of reasons which we're hoping to dive into. So for me, that, that's what a sleeping giant is, someone who's consistently failing to achieve expectation. Luke? Nothing to add to that. The dictionary right there. I think you just read out the dictionary, haven't you, Jay? <laughs> um, I, I'm from Sheffield, mate. We don't own dictionaries. <laughs> no, I, I think I agree with what, what, what Jay said there. You know, as, as you say, sleeping giants is a broad term. I think we can have different, you know, there's different sleeping types of sleeping giants. Obviously, as Jay mentioned, we are doing AC Milan today, obviously a European Cup winning side on many occasions, I think it's seven. And they are obviously a huge team. We might do teams that maybe had smaller periods of success where they were consistent team challenging for trophies. Maybe they never won them, but fell in harder times. And we'll do obviously clubs who fell down divisions as well. So it's a bit of a broad term. But as Jay said, we are going to discuss AC Milan. Now, AC Milan are obviously a huge club within within European football history. And really, they can be defined by three, you know, I say they can redefined in three different eras by four well-known and great managers. The first era was in the 1960s under Nerio Rocha, who won two European Cups, some one Cup Winners' Cup, in three different spells as manager. He had great players such as the Milan Idol, Gianni Rivera, Jose Altafini, uh, and also he managed you know, future managers in Giovanni, Tra- Giovanni Trapattoni, Nerio Scala, and Cesar Maldini. Rocha was obviously one of the first proponents of the Catanaccio, which was also made famous by Heleno Herrera's Grande Inter team by playing a sweeper and a more defensive compact system that became what Italian football was known as, known for for the next 30 odd years. And then obviously you had the second era, which is based over two managers. First of all, you had the great Rigo Sacchi, that obviously revolutionised Italian football with his fluid 4 4 2. Obviously, you had Baresi, Maldini, Hullet, Reichardt, Van Basten. He won two European Cups under Saki. And then, obviously, when Saki left to take over the, man- the national team, you then had uh, Fabio Capello continued his work and won a Champions League after the Champions League started. And also had an invincible season in 91-92 that didn't, didn't lose a game. And finally, the last great year of Milan under Carlo Magnifico himself, Carlo Ancelotti, he won two European <laughs> 
we won two European Cups and lost in a very unmemorable final against the team that we don't think we've heard much from since. <laughs> and of course, we've got, and of course, they had great players like Maldini, Cafu, Kaká, Shevchenko, Pilo, and Zaghi, and some of the greats that side. Obviously, Sahi also, Berezi, Maldini, Hullet, Reichard, Van Basten. So, a very rich history. AC Milan, the last one in the league title in 2010 2011 was Massimiliano Allegri, who obviously went on to have greater success with Inter Milan. So, clearly, guys, this is a club with great success and historical significance. What are your memories or what are your you know, things that you take from AC Milan? What are your thoughts on AC Milan? My, my, my earliest really memory is, is the massive Champions League final win against the kind of dream team of Barcelona, um, where it, it wasn't that wasn't remotely expected. You look back at that Milan side now and you, you see a lot of world-class players at the time um, or, or who went on to be world-class players. But that was probably the earliest memory as a, as a very young kid um, of who AC Milan were and who they could be because they absolutely destroyed Barcelona. Uh, and then went on to, as you said, quite clearly there to have a, a kind of period of un- unprecedented success. And I think it was at a time, early 90s to middle 90s, where in England, you were becoming more aware um, of, of European football. It was becoming slightly more accessible. And then into the late 90s, you kind of had the, uh, obviously, Galazzo uh, uh, and uh, plenty of programmes like that on, which were showing the goals from, from Serie A as it hit its pomp, really. And AC Milan were always that team. If I'm honest, I think a lot of people in England had as their their Italian team um, just because of that early 90s success. So that was kind of my earliest memories of them. And um, yeah, so... I, I, I think a lot of people remember them from that kind of early to middle 90s era uh, of my age, um, certainly. Uh, and, and that's where kind of Italian football was, was beginning to hit its pomp as well. So that, that success that they had, I, I think, is ingrained in your memory. And the, the goals that kind of Dejan Savicevic was scoring um, were, were, were seriously uh, a fond memory of, of my early childhood. So what about you, Luke? Yeah, I think I've got kind of more of a modern view of it because obviously you know, showing my age a little bit, but by the time that I kind of started to really grasp, you know, football and history and trends like that, it was always for when you're looking at Milan, it was always starting to be that situation you knew it was such a big club with so much tradition, but you didn't kind of see those results on the pitch. Um, I mean, I, I think probably my first memories was, was maybe Kakar going to Man United and just absolutely, I'll never forget just having Vidic in his back pocket and just running the show at United. Um, and then obviously, you know, the the game against Liverpool is kind of etched in, in everyone's memory. Um, and although they went, and, you know, they went and won the Champions League, I think it was a year or two later after that, um, it kind of stuck in my head as, you know, a bit of a show of what was to come for, for the club and, and what was to be probably a painful time for a lot of AC Milan fans. For me, I think AC Milan, you know, as Jay said, Italian football in the 90s was a bit of a culture thing in England, obviously. We had the football Italia with James Richardson on Channel 4. I remember George Ware's famous goal where he carried it the full length of the pitch and scored. I think I also like Jay, one of my earliest you know, European Cup of Champions League memories is that famous final against Barcelona. And I think, you know, you remember all the players like George Ware, Marcel Desailly. And obviously the, the player, I suppose, that defines Milan for, for many of, you know, people of our age is obviously 
pa- Paolo Maldini, who was part mm-hmm. of both really the, the Capello, the uh, Rigo Sacchi, and of course the, the Carlo Ancelotti. So yeah, they're, they're, they're one of those sides that I've, I've always you know admired. I think the Kaká was such a super player, especially during that second Champions League run. I know they obviously they got beaten the final by Liverpool in 2005, but in the 2007 that run up to that final, he was that's what I think he won the World Player of the Year that year. Yeah. He was just outstanding, yeah. such a, yeah. such a great player. And obviously they've always been built on. I think you know, obviously the Abarese, the Maldini, Costa Curta, Sotti. They always were built on a great defence. And I think, I think that's what Milan will be ever known for. That sort of that defence with Cat. And obviously that yeah, the Cafu later. Um, but I think that's what we'll always know Milan for is that sort of the, the famous defence that made most of it, at least national team defence, when they made the World Cup final in 1994. And of course, when obviously they won the World Cup in 2005 as well, so 2006. So, yeah, the, the AC Milan rich history and obviously, you know, seven time European Cup winners, there's no no doubt in the pedigree. But in recent years, not so great. I, you know, I'll, I'll throw some before we start discussing the recent issues. I'll throw some numbers at you guys. Since Massimiliano Allegri left in 2014, Milan have had eight managers in six years. We'll go through some of them probably as we talk. Uh, they've had three owners. They've had various different people in charge of the transfer strategy and have spent, according to transfer markets, so it's very broad, very, it could be wrong, 570 million on new players in that time. Incredible. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So obviously, there's a lot to dig into here on the you know in these last six or seven years, which sort of fell away after the leg we left. What do you feel, guys, are the major issues for Milan's decline? I think for me, looking, I mean, even the one word is just instability. When you when you go through those numbers, there, um, I think there's just it's been such a culture of so much change, constant change, and you as a result, you can't build any momentum. You can't build any momentum in terms of strategy and the players you bring in, youth development and all those kind of things. And then I think you get into that situation where you have a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, And I think you see it with United when you start dropping out of Champions Leagues and then you have less money and then you can't kind of do do a Real Madrid type thing where you're picking off, you know, the best players from the top and you don't have to have kind of such a cohesive sort of strategy. Um, and I think kind of all those things culminate together and, and you find a situation where you've spent however much as you said and in the last however many years it's been, they've not really had anything to show for it. Yeah, I, 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 th- I, think, that's comp- I think that's completely fair. Um, I think when you look at it, it, it leadership is probably the, the, the biggest weakness really of, of this li- most recent decade of Milan really. Um, Last won the title in 09-10 under Massimiliano Allegri, as you say, and then last in the Champions League in 13-14. But even the windows between that last title win and their last appearance in the Champions League, just such poor recruitment. And I don't think it's because they're signing bad players as such. I think it's because of the issues at the top of the club. Um, any cap, any ship without a captain is never going to stay on a true course. And I think that once the kind of, and we won't delve into them, of course, but once the kind of personal issues for Berlusconi hit in, and the infighting in the club began with Galliani kind of leaving and then kind of coming back and lots of rumours about him and, and where Maldini then came into the club once he retired. Um, and then the different ownership groups. So obviously they had the Chinese ownership group that kind of bought the club with a, a fund, a hedge fund from the Elliott group, who are, who are now the current owners, and basically never actually had the financial backing to follow through. Um, the business model was all based on spending a lot of money to try and make Champions League, which they, they didn't do. Um, and I, th- I think now 
you look at it and they've just been a complete mishmash of ownership models, of technical directors, of people with power at the top of the club who are actually influencing the what happens on the pitch, really not not having a coherent strategy. And I, I think you can probably see that, as Luke rightly says, at a lot of clubs, but at no more no more in the world probably more pronounced than Milan, really. When you consider the downfall that they've had since kind of 2010, um, you know, you look at the 2010-2011 window, that's when they bought in Zlatan um, and it was the year after they lost Kaka. The windows after that have just been, I mean, the, the money fell out of Milan as well, which was obviously a problem. They stopped, although they were still spending big, they stopped spending on, on the big players um, until kind of a, a recent window where they spent a lot on younger players, but we'll get into that, I guess, in, in more specifics later on. And I think that's been the problem, really, Co- complete rudderless leadership of, of the club moving forwards. Yeah, and I, and, and I think, like you said, it, it, start, it started as well, I think it was around 2007, um, where they started kind of buying players past their peak. There was like Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, these type of guys. Um, and you could just, you got that sense that, there isn't buy-in from every single level of the club and it's something that we always, you know, speak about, which is so important, is to have every single person on the same page. And, like, you look at the Red Bull model, which is obviously such a popular model at the moment for how successful it's been. And when you see it, Dieter Mardeschitz has just given kind of the keys to Ralph Ragnick and there's just been a seamless flow of, you know, power and it's been kind of shared throughout the organisation. And everyone's on the same page. Everyone knows where the club's going, how they want to do it, how they're going to achieve it. And I think that's the thing with football. It doesn't take many factors to go wrong before because, because the margins are so tight at that, at the top level right now. There could be one or two people, one or two departments that aren't kind of on the same page. And then you get an issue moving from there. So I think that's something we all speak about and something we all think is just so important with clubs in the direction they want to go in. I, I think, I think you, you both very correct there. That lack of cohesiveness and I think that lack of plan, really. And I think there's, there's a few things that you've hit upon there that I sort of wanted to mention. I think if you look at his, the history of Milan, you know, you look at what 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 made them such a, a dominant force, really, from the mid '80s, really to, to you know the late you know the late 2000s, I guess, and obviously before we hit this 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 current decade, well, decade before 2010 to 2020, was continuity. You know, you had although managers changed, you still had. Berlusconi, you know, obviously those periods where he went missing for whatever reason, but you know, he he was always at the helm of the club. They always had Mariano Galliani as the man who was running the transfers of the club, and they had that continuity right through. There was, a, there was and then obviously you also had the players who were involved in, in that as well. You had Maldini. Maldini obviously spanned nearly three years of Milan in the fact that he came, obviously started playing in the late 80s and really through to 2009, you know, 9, 10, whatever he retired, he was there. And I think what's lacked from Milan since then is that continuity. I think it has been so scattergun. I think, you know, you, you both right to point out the ownership issues. Obviously, Berlusconi, obviously, I think he stopped really investing in Milan around after the time that they last won the title under Allegri. I think... You know, after you know, then when Lee Young Han came in, he basically borrowed a load of money on the basis that they had to make the Champions League in order to make the interest payments. Obviously, they didn't, he defaulted on those, and obviously, that's why Elliot now own it. But what's happened since is Milan have gone full one season tilt to try and make the Champions League, and it just hasn't worked. There's been no plan, it's just been season upon season of change. Managers change, as I said, they've had eight and six years. And you know, we'll, we'll talk about the managers in terms. You know, as, as people who you, know, you know, believe in recruitment strategies and insights, 
changing the manager eight times in six years, you know, what do you think in terms of an effect on the recruitment as well as the on-pitch, you know, product? What do you think? How, how bad do you think that's affected it? The styles of different managers that they've had within that eight as well are crazy. Um, you've gone, you've gone from pure kind of. Uh, and probably unfair to say non-tactical, but certainly more man management motivators like Gennaro Gattuso, who they've obviously realised, for me, the big thing you touched on there, Andy, is over this period, they've lost the soul of the club a little bit. They've lost what Milan had, which was a personality, which had an identity. Um, and it was built on a, a really strong backbone, um, a strong Italian presence. There was always, They've always had Dutch. They've always had um, different foreigners as well. But they had a strong culture, you know, of a very experienced backbone. And that personality was lost. There's no denying that. Even though they had ageing players, I don't think those ageing players were of the same personality as the group you spoke about. So when you get, a, you know, they, they bring managers in like Gattuso. And actually, Gattuso's points for game ratio was really good. Yeah, Milan was. weren't the greatest side to watch, but it was really good. And I don't, I, I wouldn't say I don't rate him, but Vincenzo Montella's kind of managerial prowess is, is probably up for debate. But his points for game ratio was also quite good. Mm-hmm. But, they actually sacked these people or, or, or the people left, you know, whatever it was for, generally because the club didn't want them because these guys would have definitely stayed, especially Catuso. Um But you just see a, a consistent lack of backing of a manager. I understand that that European model is a little bit more expressive. Like you say, you have a strong technical director normally. They are the face of, of the club in terms of that mid to long-term plan and coaches come and go. But normally come and go in two to three year stints, perhaps. These guys are going on average just over a year, not even that. Um, so as the players you, you don't know where you're coming or going as players and then I think as Luke says the recruitment has been so scattergun that they've just bought in not not just you know not bad players but just anyone mm. I, I, they haven't even profiled players for a certain playing style they just bought players that were obviously available to them or who they thought they were good and now you've ended up in, in most recent times with this model where Elliot owned the club now they bought in even Gazidis um, as kind of CEO as we'd see it in England and they want to move to this younger I hate the word money ball, but more of that type of approach, analytics related, younger players for a sustainable model with sell on, but also with potential to grow with the team. Yet Milan, even this season in January, went and got Zlatan. They've obviously bought a couple more experienced heads in and they had a little bit of success with that, despite a bit of a crazy season. So they're even still lost now, I think. And I think that's why the rumours of, of a guy we'll talk about later on in Ralph Ranić are probably rife, because even to this day, they still do not have a plan. That is definitely not a club with a plan. Yeah, I think I think Andy made a really good point, and it's one that I I see with United, and something that I think is really important is that you have to know where you are, and I think that's where data and analytics comes in to give you a really good, strong sense of okay, can we actually go for the title? Can we actually go for the Champions League, or do we need to build over a few seasons and to kind of have that humbleness? And I know it's hard when you're a big club and United had that same thing, but to go, you know what, we're not there. And I think that was what was brilliant about Klopp was he came in, he kind of played down things and just gave Liverpool the time to build themselves up into what they are now. And I think that's the thing is if you don't have that idea that, okay, we're not ready to go for the league, then you do chop and change with managers because you think, oh, we're one season away, we're one season away. And I think that attitude is kind of one of the most destructive things you can have in a club. Because it, it undermines everything, all the transfers. Then it's like, okay, we're one season away instead of just going, okay, let's look at some players who, who we can kind of bet in. Um, and I think like with United as well, it's an example of that. Like the Igalo transfer for me, it's just a perfect example of that six months that they've spent on Igalo now. 
is he going to be a top-class United player? I don't think so. And that six months could have been spent betting in another player, a Mason Greenwood, et cetera, et cetera, someone else you bring in. And I think that's one place where clubs can kind of potentially improve is using kind of data and, you know, fact-based decision-making to go, okay, where are we right now? Is it realistic that we can push for the title or do we need to take a little bit more time and just, you know, build slowly? Because at the end of the day, like the worst thing is if you do what you do and every year you want step away. And I know it's hard because you have so much competitive pressure and, you know, so much, especially when you're these sleeping giants. But I think that's where big people and big characters in leadership have to make those tough decisions and go, you know what, we're maybe going to cop flat for a year or two, but it's going to be worth it in the long run. No, I, I, I definitely agree with that. That the, the lack of, I think the lack of foresight and the lack, I think you know, put 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 Victor on it earlier as well when he said about the, the end of the year or sort of with Carlo Ancelotti and they were, but I think that was a self fulfilling prophecy that they were always going to have a a down period really because you sign out so many older players eventually you could time's going to run out and you're going to end up with a depleted squad and you have to and obviously Allegri did a very good job in, uh, post that time building them up again. And I think the undervalued Allegri obviously went on to take events to two European Cup final, two sorry, Champions League finals. He obviously has done really well. And whatever people say about Allegri, you know, he's one of those managers who tends to, you know, get a lead and sort of sits on his laurels. I think he, you know, Milan really in, in a sort of reversed the Carlo Ancelotti instant where Juventus discarded Ancelotti, went to Milan and won all those things. I think similar with Allegri, and that's why, you know, AC you know, Juventus have lapped Milan in a sense, and the last ten years have been imperious, really. I think that lack of foresight. And since then, as you pointed out rightly there, you know, they went with Tassotti, what a legend, of course, Seedorf, another legend, Inzaghi, another legend, Brocky, who's not a legend, but played for the club before, Gattuso, a legend, and obviously the Mihailovic and Montel, who've been effective managers in Serie A. And then obviously Gianpaolo was a big name in Sampdoria, you know, on the rise. And now they've got Stefano Pioli. They're all such different, well, to be honest with you, I couldn't really tell you what Seedorf and, Z- and Inzaghi really yeah. are as much. I think they're just the blank canvases of legends, and as you say, they're more man managers. And I think, you know, Inzaghi, you know, for all his, you know, his plus points as a player, you know, and, you know, he's a coach. He wasn't a very great technical footballer himself. So, and I remember you know, certain players when he was being coached by them, they didn't think that he could teach them what they wanted to know. And, so, and, that's, and Inzaghi, I think, has done all right as a manager, really. And he's, he's not as good as his brother Simone, but I think he's done well. But I think that's the main issue. But I think, you know, it's, you know, it, it's obviously starts from the top. You know, you've got all those different owners, but when you're changing your manager, you're not. The same example of every one of these managers played 4-3-3. The squad was set up for 4-3-3. You'd have a bit of cohesiveness there. I'm not saying you should change a manager every season, but you certainly see it with Chelsea when you know, they change managers every 18 to you know, 24 months. They, because they had that continuity within the squad, Terry, Lampard, Drogba, et you know, etc., and you know, they, had the same, they played the same system, it, you, could, you could eke that out, you could still get results. Whereas Milan have just went from one different type of manager to another. And the, the recruitments as well, which we'll obviously get on to, you know, as I said, they spent £570 million. You know, they, they seem to have gone from different things, obviously, under Ancelotti, they signed a lot of older players. Then they went, to, went through a period of signing really you know, unknown players, and then they signed, the you know, that year they signed Rodriguez and Kalahagnoglu and, and Silva and players like that. And then, obviously, as you said, Jay, this season, you know, last season they signed Liao, you know, Theo Hernandez, you know, Paquette the season before, a bit more younger, more of a money ball model. So it's been all, you're never going to find that, that, that co- cohesiveness as, as a group. And I think, as Luke rightly said, they need to say to themselves, the recent issues have all been because of poor planning 
and put you know poor execution really in the sense that they haven't mapped the mapped it out. It's been right. We're going to spend 180 million this season. We're going to make the Champions League. It's too pie in the sky. You can't do it like that. You know, as Blue points out about Klopp at Liverpool, they were good. It took them a while though because they had a poor defence and until they really added Van Dijk and Allison, it didn't get them over the top as a team yet. But he built the side as he went, and I think that's what Milan needs to look do. And obviously, we'll get down to them for the next section. But you know. In terms of recruitment, can, can, can you see why they sign players, or is there any sort of pattern, or do you think it's just been too mismatch and they really? Do you think people are poorly, or do you think they, they haven't bought bad players? It was just for the wrong managers and the wrong systems. Yeah, I mean, I would say that one of the things that I wanted to point out, as well as you know, something in terms of succession planning, um, and I think that was one thing that always used to amaze me with, with Sir Alex Ferguson was just this unbelievable kind of sense of knowing where the squad was and which players he needed to move on. And always having that thought about next season, next season, even when they had kind of unbelievable success. And I think that was something that kind of started with in 2007 with Milan and also they had, you know, Ibra and Silva who ended up leaving. And I don't think there was really a concrete plan, again, in terms of, have we got players coming through who can replace these guys and fit into whatever system we want to play? Um, and I think that's a, a really important point. Like you said, some of the signings they've made, they've not been, you know, they've not been terrible signings. There's been a lot of signings where you've seen them and you've gone, that makes sense. But where it doesn't make sense is then they get another player who kind of doesn't fit into that first signing and there's not really a, a continuity in that sense between the signings they've been making. And I think like it all comes down to that over and philosophy is the buzzword but it is that's why it's so good to kind of have a top-down approach because it can allow you to guide all your decisions and to have continuity which is going to be I think the buzzword of this podcast so far yeah that's completely fair Uh, I mean I think we know like you say we've hit the continuity on the head Um, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit more with Ralph but for me to, to answer the question between 2012 to 2015, 16, yeah, I did. I do think they signed poorly. Um, I, I'm not saying these are bad players by any means, but really only Suso, you know, has been a success, and he's probably their one of their best players now. But uh, again, with the continuity comment, they've now gone to a manager who plays a different system to what actually suits Suso. Um, but just you he's know, off on loan to Sevilla Suso as well in January. Yeah, exactly. So, so you lost. I mean, he was he, he was probably one of their better players under Gattuso. Um, you know, and it, it, he had, he was a talented boy, and then they moved to a system that didn't suit him at all. So you're shoehorning people in, um, which is the problem. But I think they did sign quite poorly um, when you look at some of the names and the values on there. And I think it was either one or two years they tried it on the cheap, and then whenever they had a go, again, the, the profile of the player they bought in wasn't what was needed. They bought in a, a, either too young or players that were probably past their prime. I mean, Carlos Baca was, was very good at Sevilla, but 30 million for Carlos Baca. Um, is is a hell of a lot of money, um, and I just think that they've they've not got the soul of the team, and I think it comes down to personality. That that club has for the past thirty years has been based on one ridiculously strong dress, dressing room, full of leaders, full of characters that understood what it is to be a, a winner at Milan, and I don't think they have or had that, and that's why you see them going back to the managers of yesteryear. That's why you see them bringing back Zlatan. That's why they bought back Kaka. 
um, at the time because they wanted to just constantly go back to that past success because that's the way they saw it. If we bet these players in, they'll bring the personality, they'll bring that history of the club with them. Yet these players are past their prime. I mean, Zlatan's done very well considering, you know, it, and this is no disrespect, but considering his age and where he's come from, he's done exceptionally well. And he's such a, an amazing player over the time he's had his career, but he isn't going to turn you around that much. Um, you know, mobility-wise, I mean, they've got a team now that if they continue with what they're doing right now, if they can continue with a plan, if they can continue with not shoehorning players in a system, but actually finding a system that suits these guys and give these guys time, they've probably got value in the squad. I think that's fair to say. I think they've got some players now that we all see as, I can understand why they bought them, but maybe they bought them at the wrong time or for the wrong manager. Um, and I think that's important that they have players now that they have value in. They finished fifth last season. Um, so not shocking by any means, you know, not 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 Milan of old, but considering the recent Milan, not not shocking at all. They were in the Champions League fight for a while. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, you can see the bones of a squad there, whether that manager, you know, whether Pioli is the right man right now, I don't know. But I think they've been left with the bones of a really poor squad makeup from when the new ownership, the Chinese ownership took over and then they haven't helped. And I think that years of bad recruitment caused a, a huge wage bill that has took them a long time to get rid of. And then now they've accelerated again with a bunch of players they're now trying to get rid of again. So they're constantly squad churning, aren't they? Yeah, and that's summer, you know, of, of 17, 18. They spent, you know, 175 million according to the transfer market. They signed Leonardo Bonucci, who obviously went back to Juventus a season later. They signed Andre Silva from Porto, Andre Conti from Atalanta, Hakan Karahoglu, Rusaccio, Ricardo Rodriguez. They got Frank Kessian on loan. Now, there's some good players in there, but altogether, it, it's, it's, very, it's very mismatch. And then the next season, they again went out and spent a load of money on different players and ship players they bought out, like Kalinic, like Bonucci. This just as, as again, we'll say there's no there's no continuity. I think you made some, you know a big point there, Jay, about this, the dressing room. I think I think that's what yeah. we lacked. I think Thiago Silva was probably the last great leader that they, you know that they probably had. And when he went to PSG, I think that was probably the you know the the the, the time when they've, they've lost that dressing room. And I think it's very hard. And think this is what my thoughts. I think Italian football in general. Maybe I'm wrong in this. I, I maybe I don't know enough behind the scenes. Do you think Italian football has been slow to react to the change in football in terms of data, in terms of strategy, in terms of the way they buy players, in terms of development? Atalanta are obviously a big outlier in that league. They're a team that does look for the that money ball, very niche. But the rest of the teams are still very, still very Italian. The way they're operated, a lot of older players, you know, a lot of you know, scatter good approaches, change of managers all the time. Do you think Italian football? Because obviously we're going to go on to Ralph Rangnick soon. Do you think Italian football has has been left behind by other leagues in, in some senses? Yeah, yeah, for me definitely. Um, I think Lazio have built pretty well as well, and that's not just yes. because of this season. Uh, you know, I think they've rebuilt because they were a sleeping giant as well for a while, um, yeah, yeah. And, and they have done a good job of rebuilding. Certainly, throwing in the younger players and then adding some experience like Ciro Immobile, who knows the league. Um, but I think you're right. I, I think Italian football is still, when I watch the games, and I love Italian football, as I say, it, I loved it from a kid. I still think a lot of them are very Italian. And I think that's what you see with Milan's recruitment now uh, and some of the names they're linked with, which we'll get onto. They're actually signing players that aren't very Italian. And I think, you know, that, that that's interesting in a way. It might not work, but at least it's interesting because they might be doing something a little bit different. You look at England, the way England changed from English football to what it is now, which is a very high pressing game. Um, excuse the technique, and I'm not just talking about Klopp here, Leicester press, Southampton press, we've had an influence of a lot of that German, you know, Austrian-German approach that 
a high press game, Pep, uh, and uh, not necessarily high possession. The certain teams that have done that, but certainly that that, that intensity and that fast paced football has took over the English game, and that's now what it's known for. I still think if you were to ask someone who generally watches a lot of football, what is the Italian football known for? I'm not sure anyone could say it's changed in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and, and I think that's why Juventus have found it so easy to dominate the game because they've they had the big, you know, once they returned properly after after that spell that they had out uh, in the second division, they, they've, they've got the best players generally, uh, they've had the best managers and they've had the best plan with the whole free transfer thing and recruiting in and building that way. Uh, and they were very clever in their recruitment. And you saw how clever recruitment just took them years ahead of everyone. Now, they've been reeled in by Lazio and, and Inter slightly this year. But I think you're right, Andy. I, I think Italian football was a little bit behind the page. And I can understand what Milan are doing at, at times um, in terms of the names. But as you say, you can't throw 10 names at a wall and hope it sticks together. You, you interview any player. John McGinn was talking about Aston Villa this morning. I saw in an interview saying this period has been great for them because they've actually got to know each other. Um, you know, they signed so many different languages and personalities in the summer. The dressing room is absolutely sacrosanct in football, especially a, a massive club like that. It has to have leadership. It has to have people who understand the culture of what that club means. Uh, and this is a club that has not had that for a long, long time. I think that, I think you made some good, a good point there in the sense that, you know, it hasn't really changed the style of football. If I look at Italian football now, you look at the change in the German from the 90s to 2000s, now to you know, the 2010s, 20s. I think that it's changed a lot. If you look at, you know, French football, that's, you know, that's changed. I know they don't produce a lot of big name managers, France. Spanish football obviously went, went through that big change, you know, you know with the, the ticket tack style of football. And I'm glad you'll hate me for saying that. But yeah, but Italian football, if you look at Arrigo Saki changed, you know, obviously on the Milan subject, changed everything with that 4 4 2 in, you know, 1987 when he came or before there was a power, he did really well as well. But, you know, really the tactical evolution hasn't really changed, I think. You know, you look at the modern coaches now. I think Simone Inzaghi is a pretty great coach, and I think they've got some good, good managers. But they're quite Italian in the way. I think Sarri is obviously a big outlier. I think he's very different. I think he had, you know, a bit of, you know, a bit of xenophobia when he came to England because they didn't like like the way he was, yeah. like his style, whatever. But and you know, and Roberto De Zerbi who's a bit of a who was at Sassuolo, who's a bit of a. Um, He's a Guardiola. He's there. He's someone who leaves the Guardiola way. I think they, they still are fairly stuck in the ways, and I think it's, it's. I think the way they, they operate still is very much like that. And I think that's why Atalanta have sort of creeped up on these teams, and why Andrea Agnelli obviously wants European Super League because I think they, they were happy with the status quo for a while. But I think if teams did do things differently in Italy, they did operate in a smarter manner. I think they could actually get you know, haul those bigger money teams in because I think it's ripe for it. And I think AC Milan have, have got semblance, as you said, of a squad shape, but there's still so many holes and still so many things to fix with it that they need to. They need to have that plan, that cohesiveness. Obviously, look at the culture of the dressing room. It's not just one, two leaders. You need a leadership group. I think that's very important. And I think a continuity of a manager. And they say, all right, okay, our aim in the next three years is to make the Champions League or make Europe at the very least. But that's not the be and end. The be and end is about building sides and a squad on on the cusp after those three years are going to be challenging consistently for trophies. And I think that's what we need to look at. And obviously, we are going to look at into this next section now in terms of solutions. But before I leave this section, are there any other recent issues or what's caused Milan's downfall you'd like to discuss? I think we've we've solved the issue now of Milan, and we can all just go home. No, no, but well, no, you're right. <laughs> I think, no, but I think I think we've all we tend we tend to agree on the issues that 
there's been some Iran and I think that's just kind of part one. And I don't want to open up the can of worms because I think we're going to go into it now about philosophy, aren't we? And kind of the overarching yes. model. Well, yeah, we're going we're going to go you know go into now you know obviously there's there's I suppose we are we are a, a, a market you know, market insights is a recruitment and, and solutions in you know we provide recruitment insight and solutions via data you know obviously through scouting as well I think the way obviously we are we also look at managers that's that's big, that's big at the moment we are looking at manager models as well so in terms of you know obviously the you know it would be very Silly of me not to start this by discussing Ralph Ragnick because there's obviously been a lot of in the press that he's going to join AC Milan. Is Ralph Ragnick, and this is a bit of a broad question, it's going to lead on to much more, but is Ralph Ragnick the right man to lead AC Milan back to the top? Or is he the man to set the club up that so it can be successful in the future? So it's a two part question, really. I think it's a really hard question to answer simply because if you look at when you think of Ranić, you know everyone looks at that that RB kind of model and his influence there in terms of that high press, fast vertical football, and that absolutely suits the leagues that those teams play in. Um, for anyone who's ever watched, has any interest or scouted in the Austrian league, um, and Luke's brother plays in it, so he's got more knowledge than most. It is an extremely basketball style. It is end to end with not much in the middle. Um, Germany has become very much that, you know, in terms of XG goals per game, all the kind of attacking metrics, the Bundesliga on a per game average knocks out the rest of Europe in the top top five leagues. So it, those leagues are very much suited to that style of play. When you say, Ken, if you were to say, and this is an if, Ranić might have other ideas, but if you were to say Ranić gets the job and those are the principles he's going to try and influence on that squad. Okay, let's look at sample sizes. So Conte, plays similar, I think that's fair. High press, Inter have covered more distance than anyone, I think, players this season. Um, they get knackered, which is why they've tailed off a little bit. I think the players have said that. But he, earlier in the season when Inter were at the top with Juve, they were, they were very high press, high intensity. And yeah, that, that, that style's worked pretty well. But Conte had to go out and buy a whole new squad um, and have a massive squad as well with a big wage bill. So that's a lot of backing, which, yeah, I, I'm not sure Milan, these own, this ownership group of Milan, yeah, they throw some money at it, but I'm not sure they're going to throw that much, especially of the players, you know, who could influence that style. So does Ralph have to change a little bit? Does you know, Mr. Ranić have to come into the league and change a little bit, possibly? You look at Monchi, when Monchi left what he built at Sevilla and then when stepped out of that zone, it, it didn't work. And that's not to say he's wrong um, from his time at Roma. But again, I think you're right, Andy. Italian football is, is still quite very different in the politics behind the scene and the characters that run these clubs and that, that interact in that recruitment world and that philosophy world. So there's huge personalities at Milan behind the scenes. And there's already a power battle between, well, there was a power battle between Gazidis and Boban and now Boban's out of the picture. Um, Maldini's still around the picture. In the background, Gazidis is going to be there. You throw Ranić in that. Who's going to hold the power to actually make the decisions and influence? I think that's the big key. If Ranić comes in, you have to give Ranić the keys to the house. And if you don't do that, you're not going to see the influence of what he does, whether that's positive or negative. You will never see the influence of a good kind of director of football, technical director like Ralph Janić, if you do not give him the keys to the house. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great point. And it's a, I think it's such an interesting topic because in terms of just overarching philosophies, I think you start with a philosophy and then it kind of builds down into your recruitment model. And I look around and obviously the Red Bull one's very popular, but there there is also teams who are kind of based on pragmatism. Like 
if you look at the models of Chelsea and um, Real Madrid, it's kind of like we know that we have the financial backing to go and buy the best players. And we don't need to have that model where we develop players because we know we have the financial resources to go and pick players from the top. But I think if you look at AC Milan now, they don't have that. They're not going to have that over the next few years. So then you start looking at, okay, what other models are maybe suitable to us? And then that's when we start getting into, okay, maybe we're looking at, you know, the Red Bull type model. Um, and, and without a shadow of the doubt, I think looking around in football, it's probably been the best model in terms of developing players. And especially like if you look at the way Leipzig's grown, they've grown the model now to a point where it started off about developing players, but they've, there's actually been an evolution to it. And it's got to a point now where they've got top world-class players. But I think you also have to be very careful and be understanding that there's cultural factors that come into play. For example, like we spoke about the culture in Germany, that kind of pressing culture has been, and I read Das Reboot, which I thought was a brilliant book, and, and it kind of made me understand that that kind of pressing culture was, you know, like bubbling away and it's been bubbling away for 20, 30 years in Germany. And it was maybe a perfect culmination of those factors that was why the Red Bull model has worked so well. And so I think you really have to do your detailed analysis and really break things down kind of into first principles and understand, okay, what's going on? What can we do? And it might be a case that, you know, they want to play even like a more Catanaccio style, if you will. Um, But there also has to be development within the philosophy. And I think that's one thing that people don't speak about as well with the Red Bull model. It's like if you look at the way Red Bull played 10, 15 years ago, it was very different now. Like Leipzig is very different to if you ever watched the Hoffenheim team of Ralph Ragnick when they were just, it was heavy metal football. It was absolutely insane. If anyone wants to watch a crazy game of football, go watch Bayern against Hoffenheim in 2007 because that is incredible. Um, but I think, so I think you have to kind of be wary of copying other kind of systems and, and models and you still have to tailor it to, you know, the situations at hand. And I think that's something as well we've had a bit of an issue with in Australia. We've gone and got the Dutch philosophy and we've kind of tinkered with different things. And I think you also have to be aware, like I said, of the cultural factors that are to play in your own club, country, wherever you are and look at best practices in the world and kind of build something that suits for your club or, or whatever kind of organisation you're working with. I think I think that's a great point. And just to start, before I get into my main point, I'd love them to bring the cat and that show back. I love I, I miss sweepers. I think it's one of the lost positions, great positions. You're Beckenbauer, players like that, Sammer, you know, Lothar Mateus, bringing the ball out from the back like a defensive field, but also being the last line of defence. I think that was that's a lost art, really. But no, I, I, I tend to agree. And I think that's the fascinating part of Brand You know, I think people have often wondered whether Pep Guardiola would ever end up on you then you'd you think, you know, Guardiola's style, you know, controlling that possession, oppressing in, in Italy where it's so tactical and it can be slow and a lot of tactical fouls and you, and you wonder how that would fit in and then you look at more of a heavy heavy metal football style, more of a, you know, a German style, and you, you know, it's fascinating to think how that would fit in with the Italian culture and whether it'd change and I, I don't and I think the, the key really would be for Ralph Ragnick, it'd be, it'd be evolution not revolution, you can't change it overnight it has to be, as you said Luke, you have to think about the, the evolution of the style slowly getting the players into the club and changing the style away from what it is now and then eventually in a couple of years, you know, two, three years time when you've made those recruitment decisions and you build, obviously you implant it now, the system and the, the philosophies now because you have to get the players 
who will be part of your future ready to play and, and as a cohesive unit but obviously you're building towards that ideal of getting to that, that evolution of star i think that that's really key and i, I think right, right i don't think italy's the, it, it's really hard to, to say whether it work in italy or not because italy's such a different type yeah. of place the recruitment for example the solar of you know 50 50 ownership the amount of loans some teams have 60 or 70 players out on loan you know I, I don't see I don't see I don't see the Red Bull model as it is now working for Milan but maybe a tailored model to the Italian game may work what do you think yeah and that's the that's the, I literally you know I said the same and I, I think you're, you're spot on to raise that because it is the interesting thing isn't it we've just said that we think that on the whole that's not to say Italy hasn't changed or evolved slightly but you know, Italy hasn't really shifted its philosophy as a, as a league yet in terms of what it what it consistently plays like, what teams consistently play like. And that's not to say every team has to play like it, but, you know, where is that trait in 2020 of what Italian football is? So that's not to say that something can't new can't work. It absolutely can. Um, but I think the whole evolution rather than revolution and building on what you have is key. Now, what, what I think Milan have is a really interesting profile of a team. They have the average age of their defence is about 24, 25 years old. That's really quite young for a defence, especially in someone like Serie A. They have a midfield that has a lot of young, mobile players in it, especially in those central kind of pivot positions, the number six, number eights. So, and actually, they have quite a foreign influence to their squad. For a team that have been built on quite an Italian cultural background, there's a lot of foreign influence in that team. The main Italian influence is, you know, in terms of experience in Italy, is probably the goalkeeper in Donnarumma. So, I think what you have is actually a team that might well suit Ranić in certain areas and in certain other areas won't. So Ranić can come in and probably can build a slight pressing philosophy, certainly raise the intensity, but that's not Ranić's job. If Ranić's coming as a technical director, that's the manager's job. And here we hit the crux of it, which is, uh, and we're not going to make that call today. We're not certainly not going to say he's a good or bad or manager, but if Ranić comes in, does Pioli stay? We've just said that they need to have consistency in who's in charge of their recruitment, a consistency in the coach, consistency in their philosophy. Well, if they bring Ranyak in, do they need to tear that up and start again? I think that's the key, isn't it? Because if Pioli doesn't want to do what Ranyak wants him to do, then that won't work. So Ranyak would need a manager that can come in and play that style of football with the players available, but tweak it slightly to suit some of the players that aren't going to be able to have that high intensity without spending another 100 million. Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of him coexisting with Ragnik, I would dare say that that's almost an impossibility. Um, you know, speaking to some coaches who, because I, I find the Red Bull system kind of fascinating, and some of the coaches who went through kind of the Red Bull Coach Academy said to me that, like, the philosophy, people think they understand it. It's something that take, took him kind of two years to get his head around. And I think that's the thing. It's so well-defined Ragnik's philosophy that he probably either has to do it himself or he needs to bring someone in, in who completely understands it. And then you're talking about overhauls, you know, within the club. Um, and I think that's that's the thing with the philosophy and why I find like Pep Guardiola amazing as well is it's about knowing exactly where your philosophy and where it isn't. And that sounds maybe a bit overarching and a bit um, simple, but when you break it down, like, Ragnik knows that Nagelsmann can play kind of a bit more of a progressive, not progressive passing, a bit more possession-based, but it's still within that Red Bull philosophy. And I think, again, until AC Milan gets to that point where, you know, they've decided on that, then it's going to be hard to kind of decide on a coach. But 
I think, yeah, like Ragnik as well, I think coming in as a coach, like actually managing the team and as a sport director, I, I think that I would be surprised. Um, he had issues with, I think he, he's, he's a bit of a workaholic, like most of the guys in our company as well. Um, and I think I think he would probably look to oversee the whole kind of organization rather than go in as, as a coach. But you, you never know, he might, he might miss the dugout. I can imagine that is one thing that could happen. The rumour is that he is going to come in as coach and technical director. I don't know if that's true or not. I can, I can imagine that he'll, he'll come in as definitely as the overriding you know, authority. But the rumour is that he wants to coach. And I think that's a different subject altogether. Obviously, Ralph Ranjik's an innovator in a sense. He changed German football in a, in a lot of ways and innovated a lot of the changes to the national team. If you read that book, Das Reboot, it's very heavily influenced the German system by Ralph Ranjik. And, my question at the start was, would Ralph Rangnick lead them back to the top? The proper answer is, the pro- is probably no, because Ralph Rangnick's never been a manager. Who's, he's, I think he's won the DFB Pokal, he's won one, one, one uh, smaller league, but, and I think uh, Leipzig promoted, but he's never been one for winning trophies. He's always been like a Bielsa, more of an innovator than, than a winner, if you will. So I think, like we've said here, I think the, the key with Rangnick is more that he's going to come in and, and build something and I think he'll put things in place and succession plans in place and, he, and, he'll, and he'll build a culture within the club and I think that, that's so key for Milan as we said in the, in the issues of what led them to where they are now all that all that mess and all that change of philosophies will end because Ralph Ranjik will set well, you know, the idea will be to set them up for the next five to ten years and build that Milan philosophy and maybe become you know maybe not the Red Bull of, of Italy but Milan will be the new face of a new, a new type of and it, it, you know, there's no guarantee it'll all work because Italian football is very different but I think that, that that's key really I think if Ranjik does come in I think I, I can't see him in purely working it's two philosophies that don't really sit well with each other and I think I think it's 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 key that they that Ranya kind of takes over or brings his own manager if you've got anything that's out to that. Yeah, it was just interesting on the Ranić point, actually, um, because when you look at what Leipzig have had to do to try and be at the top and be a bit more better in the Champions League, they had to bring in Nagelsmann because Nagelsmann can play the pressing style, but he can also play a possession game. Yeah, exactly. um, and he can advance you, you know, in possession. He has that box form, diamond formation with a kind of 4-2-2. Um, and they had to do that because as much as Hassan Hootel was good and he's doing a fairly good job at Southampton, it was all pressing. And when they got the ball or, or teams realised, let them have the ball and sit deep. They can't break you down. Um, so they've had to bring in Nagelsmann. They've had to evolve already. And I think that's really interesting what you say about Ranić and that whole philosophy. It might work originally, it might not, but it's likely to set the foundations but not do anything and do Milan have that time? We've just spoke about that, you know. This, this, this is a club with a, a winning history and, and no one gets time at Milan. Now, we're saying that they absolutely should try and give a little bit more time, mm-hmm. uh, but the owners might not have that time to give. You know, th- that model of AC Milan needs that worldwide, global kind of eyes on it because of who they were in the past and the income that can bring to them. So I think it is interesting because you can't always bring in winners into a high-pressing model because with high-pressing generally does come a lower, younger age, which to be fair, Milan have kind of got a more mobile kind of physical player, less maybe technical. Zlatan Ibrahimovic would not fit a high-pressing model, for example. Um, <laughs> so it, it's really interesting that, and I think that'll be key when Ranjit comes in to see what, what does actually the, the shape of the squad look like. And I think also I, one, one point, just touching on what you were saying, Jay, was that I... 
football does come in trends. I think everyone would agree on that. And I think it's a really interesting one now. Is that kind of style of play, is that the best style of play there is? Or is it kind of another trend? And I, I always kind of think that the pressing was a natural progression from everyone kind of playing more the tiki-taka kind of possession style of play. And it was kind of a natural way to break that system down. And I wonder if we'll see another evolution again, if we'll go to another kind of perfect style of system to break the high-pressing style. And I think that's the other interesting point is can AC Milan maybe predict that? Can they think of a system that no one's doing right now? Break it down with whatever analytics they've got, get the smart guys in the room and maybe think of something a little bit different, make it their own and just go all the way into it. Now, that is probably the riskiest strategy you could do, but maybe that is what it takes as well to be successful and to kind of break the voodoo that they've had over a few years. Now, I wouldn't definitely say that's something they should do, but it's just kind of a thought, maybe a theory or an idea to kind of throw about. No, I agree what you guys have said there. In terms of the squad, now obviously we talk about Ralph Ranjik every. What do you think of Milan? You know Milan's current squad in terms of FIFA Ranjik. What do you think? Do you what do you think of the strength? You know the strengths of the squad and where do you think you might need to add? You don't have to go into specific names, but or you, you can do if you wish. But you know what do you think that you need to add for Ranjik to be you know be successful if he was to be coach or if he was to be manager? Um, in terms of the squad, like I, I agree with Jay. There's a lot of players in there that I look at that would say they're kind of Red Bull-type players. Um, Redditch, even Paqueta with, with his defensive numbers are impressive. Kessie, um, you know, these type of players I think could all suit kind of a Ragnick style of play. I think in terms of the back line, there would need to be a few more adjustments. Um, but also a good coach can kind of bring those, those points out of those players as well. So I think that's another point is you have to know which coaches coming in but if we say Ragnik I think there is like we say a lot of potential um there's Bonaventure he's going out of contract I think we spoke about that Hakan Chanaroglu's going up if I've probably butchered his name but he's going out in a year Donnarumma as well so I think those are some areas to highlight that Milan would need well will definitely be aware of um and then Ibrahimovic I think Ibrahimovic is a really interesting one what would happen if if Ragnik came in um I know he's had uh, fights in the past kind of big egos and I don't know if two two not big egos but two very strong characters to say that um how that would how that would work together but like I said there's a lot I think if Ragnick was looking at the squad he would he would be pleased with and I don't think he would think it's miles away from you know getting a squad that can kind of play his type of football I think I think the base is there but they need more mobility in that forward yeah. line yeah, um, yeah. Rebic is obviously lonely. It's not been amazing, so I, I can't see them. I mean, I don't know, <laughs> but is that going to be permanent? I, I, I don't know. Uh, Rafael Liao, yeah, he's a mobile target man. Kind of in the. If we are talking about Ranić, you could probably maybe say that kind of, and this is not to label him or stereotype him, but Yusuf Poulsen type player. Yeah. You know, somebody yeah. can hang on the shoulder. Who, who's a tall guy, but by no means a target man. When I say mobile, you know, he can run channels, he can kind of run with the ball from deep, he can occupy centre-halves. But that forward line, when you look at Chalahagnu, and yeah, he probably won't play. Paquetta is very good and technical. He's nippy on the ball, but, you know, is he physically a high presser? Can he run him behind? For me, they've got no penetration. Um, 
which which I think is you know that that's that's key to vertical football, not just pressing, but vertical football. You need penetration in behind, mm. um, and that's where the money is spent as well. So for me, that would be the biggest problem. I think with a you know, and this is not picking a formation. If you look at the midfield available, okay, Bigley are probably not, um, but Ben Asir and Frank Kessie, absolutely. Um, that is that is a mobile kind of pivot that can go and chase the ball, harass the ball. Um, he's okay on it from deep, but can certainly apply pressure. Theo Hernandez at left back, um, okay, not starting at the minute, but certainly a player who can run up and down all day long, engine wise. There's enough there to build on, but there's an awful lot of money that would have to be sent, spent, or, or at least that's where the, the relaxation of the philosophy would need to come in from Renyuk, and he might need to build on what's available to him rather than what he wants to do. I, I, I agree with that. I'm probably going to repeat some of what you said, Jay, because the way I look at and this is what I often do, really, I think of Ranić's best side over the last couple of years, and you think of the Leipzig side that he built. And you, you've got Donnarumma as a goalkeeper. You know, the goalkeeper is not the most important part of Ranić's system, but Donnarumma is a, is a top flight goal. He's only got a year left. That is a big thing that Milan need to sort out. Benister, you know, wonderful player, was great at Empoli last season. Knows the Italian leagues really well. He could do the the Deme role, you know. In that midfield, for that like like he did for Leipzig for years, and then Kessie, no, no, he's no Naby Keita, don't be wrong, but Keita, Kessie, sorry, is a is a really interesting player. He's got talent, just a bit inconsistent. We had that good first year at Milan, and you know, had a good year at Atalanta, which made them buy him, and then he's, he's not been the same since. He could do you know that mobile, as you say, he's very mobile in that midfield area. I think Romagnoli, the captain, the centre back, is a really good centre back. He's an Italian style centre back. I still think you need to keep that identity within the side because it is the, the Italian league. And, uh, you know, Pippa Quest, someone has asked a question about him, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump to the question now, actually, because I, I think it's a really interesting case. Do you think he's a, you know, guys, do you think he's a, a, another failed experiment, or do you think he's just someone who needs a chance under the right manager? I, I personally like Piquetta. Um I've not watched a huge, huge deal of him. Um, but from what I see, I, I, I agree with Jay. He's not someone that's going to be going in behind, but I think like you and me spoke about off air, Andy, someone if they were playing a 4-2-2, two could be a really good player in between lines. Um, but I mean, it is, a, it is a valid point in terms of penetration, which is something massive to, to the Red Bull system. But I think you can, you know, a good coach who knows the system well can kind of build around that. And I think that's really an interesting one as well with the Olmo transfer um, into Red Bull now and Leipzig. I think that's something that's potentially you're going to see there wasn't a signing that I necessarily thought was a massive Red Bull signing at the time, which I thought was quite interesting to see how they were going to build him into things. So I put, I mean, it's only been, he's only been in Europe a year. Um, and if you look at his underlying stats, they're quite good. He's in terms of not penalty XG, he's good. Um, aerial jewels, defensive jewels, he's right up there. Um, top 15% for them. So I think there's a lot, and especially with the money they've spent now on him. I think to kind of cast away, it would be a signing that in a few years it will probably come back and bite them. And I think he'd do quite successfully somewhere else. And then everyone would look look back at it and kind of, with hindsight, condemn them for it. I, I like Lucas Picazza. I think he was, I think he was a good player when he came to Milan. I think, the, unfortunately, much like other players, the the, the the change of managers and the wrong system for him. I think there was a lot of expectation that he was going to be the new Kakar. And I think that at the time when he when he went there, he was you know people looked at you know, Liverpool looked at him obviously because of his pressing and his ability to win the ball back in high areas. And I think. I think under Ralph Rangnick, I think he could have a bit of a you know have a bit of a comeback. Really, I think I looked when I looked at the team and Jay did rightfully mention up front. I think 
Raphael, I think you can maybe can build with him. But I think next to him, you need to have someone, you know, obviously a quicker, more penetrative type. And I think next to Paquetti, you need the same someone, you know, who's a bit of a goal threat who can add goals and create things, but like a Forsberg they've got for, you know, for, for Leipzig. I think that the, them two areas are the, you know, the, the big main areas that they, they, they're really going to struggle, that they need to add to if Ragnick. So they need to, you know, add another attack in the field, attack in the field, slash winger. I think they need to add a more mobile centre half next to Ramoli. If you look at the best. Italian sides, you know, they've always got the best parents are always, you know, that tactical stopper, Chiellini, Bonucci, and a ball playing quicker, you know, centre back next to them who can obviously cover him behind. And, you know, there's, there's obviously players out there that, you know, Milan could look at, but I think that's, they're the areas that they need to look at. I actually, you know, he's on loan. I think they've, they've agreed the deal to sign him. I like Alexis Salamakas, who's on loan from Anderlecht. I think he's got very good potential to be, you know, really good attacking right back. I think he just needs a bit, you know, he's in the best place for it, but away from his tactical, you know, tactical side of his game and you know Italy's probably the best place to learn that. I think Italy's a very difficult league to go to on Paquetta. I think it's a, a really difficult league where young players can struggle because it is so tactical because it's it is so tight you know, you know they get away with a lot more fouls than they do in other countries and I think it takes a lot it takes a bit of an adaptation some players never make it and then they go into other countries and, and, they, and they do well. We've seen Andre Silva he's not been great this year in Germany but he's certainly much better than he was at Milan. You know, players like that do well. I think Mo Salah was good in for Roba but we look at the difference He's been for Liverpool and it's a bit more open. He's much, much more of a you know, goal threat. I think that the, it, it is tough in Italy. I think that's a, I think Ragnick will have to work out is how he applies his system and how the players fit into that system. And I think, I think Paquette will, will benefit from a new manager who uses his talents best rather than just trying to fit him into a team because he wasn't wasn't an, ex, an expensive signing. I think you did mention there that there's four players out of contract this season, one being Begovic, Biglia, Bonaventura and, and Ibrahimovic. And I think overall, you know, we've looked at what the, you know, the solutions of what, you know, with, you know, for AC Milan, obviously we, we've heavily focused on Ralph Ragnick. We've heavily focused on, you know, the, the players they've already got. Have you got any other any other thoughts on any other solutions, Jay? Have you, have you got any other solutions that you could, you could look at doing? Yeah, I mean, just just to, just to circle back on one final one on Paqueta as well. I, I think moving away from the on the pitch, off the pitch, the pressure that's on the kid to be Kakar is unreal. Um, mm. You know that, that it, not just because the stereotypical young Brazilian, but young Brazilian who's kind of a number ten slash outside foot, you know, winger it inverts. It, that is massive at a club like AC Milan because of their history of that. It's the same with the number nine position. It's why they always have to go back to a, a Zlatan because they had Shevchenko, they had Zlatan before that, they've had nines. It's why there's an awful lot of pressure because there's a lot of kind of responsibility that's associated with those positions in the squad. Um, and I, I think that's really interesting because I think Paqueta has a, an awful lot of talent, but you have to build around Paqueta for him to shine um, at this level. And I think you guys touched on that, so I won't go too in-depth on that, but absolutely, you have to bring in the players that, that would allow Paqueta to do what he does best. It, you can't you can't pigeonhole him um, because if you do, you, you're kind of stifling what, what he's he's naturally good at, which is drifting and into ser- seriously good pockets of space. Um, Solutions-wise, I, I think the main thing they have to do, it, it, and this is going to sound interesting from a recruitment solutions company, but they have to realise that the answer might be in the room for once rather than going external and signing it. Um, we've, touched it. On a bunch of, you know, we've touched on a bunch of players there that are probably good enough. And that's, that's great. But they have to realise that and they have to have... A, a seriously good player development model. That's something that Red Bull have that no one ever speaks, I wouldn't say no one ever speaks about, but a lot of people don't speak about, which is that they can bring these players in from Salzburg, they can bring them in from different areas, but they develop them to be absolutely top stars because they have, yes, the philosophy, yes, the consistency, but they also give them time and appearances. 
They actually stick with them through good and bad patches. Um, who would have thought Conrad Limer would have come out of nowhere this year? You know, there's always players that they recycle and reproduce from. So they have to give these kids time, like Benesser, like Frank Kessie, because there is a lot of pressure associated with playing for AC Milan. And we've touched on it. It's like the Manchester United thing. This isn't AC Milan anymore of what it once was. This is a new era for AC Milan. If they're going to start that right, then they have to give the players the correct time, develop them correctly in a consistent manner that allows them to show their talents to whatever philosophy they choose to do. I, I think you've made an absolutely fantastic point there. And I think that's the really the two big keys for Milan is the answer could be in the room. I think we've talked about cohesiveness and consistency. I think by not changing everything, you know, Ryan Yukon has to come in, maybe add one or two players, but I don't try and overhaul the squad quickly, do it in stage stage. And I think player development's super super key. Agree. The play, you know, the best teams in Europe at the moment bring players in. They give them time, like you know, Klopp sometimes brings players and they don't play for 10, 15 games, gets them better than gets them to work gets them to understand this tactical system, what he wants for them, and they develop them on the fly. And see, even Leipzig, his players don't play for a year. You know, hey, Dara's not played for a year. I guarantee maybe next season he'll be, he'll be in and around the first team and he'll, he'll probably do well. I think that's really key is that they start developing players and not buy these players and give up on them so quickly. I think they're trying to find the best, you know, get get them ready and get them used to playing in that league quite as quick as they can and, and develop them is key. I think that, that's a great point. Any final thoughts, Luke, on that? No, I think I think we all agree. Player development model, it's, it's so key. You know, Brentford do it so brilliantly. Um, and I think it's it's one place where Red Bull have put massive, massive amounts of money into it. And it's all just part of having that one cohesive plan is that if, you, you know, you have that player development model and then you combine that with a good recruitment model, you have a coach that's allowing these players to bed in. And it's also another thing is it's easier for the players to bed in. You know, I've gone into systems where coaches have played slightly differently and, and it's another thing as well with language barriers when players come in um, and all these type of things. They're the little marginal gains that if players have played in a similar type system at another club and they come in to a similar type system in Milan, then it helps maybe that 5-10% um, just to get there a little bit quicker. Um, so I think those are all you know really good points. I think the three main things to take out of this really are you know, consistency, cohesiveness, and, you know, time. I think, they, 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 you know, they, they need to have a, a period where they don't change so much. And we'll, we'll move on now, as I say, to the questions answers. Anyway, we answer one of them. I was going to answer one of them because it's quite interesting. Obviously, we're based in England. With, you know, you, well, you're, not, you're obviously living in Norway, but being obviously based in England. And Milan were recently linked with Jeff Hendrick. What do you think player. of the Great What do you think of <laughs> what do you think of the reasons behind you know players like Jeff Hendrick, Matty Cash, obviously Anthony, Anthony Robinson was linked in and all was signed in January before he had the unfortunate heart issue. Why do you think that the Milan are being linked with so many championship players and all English players, English league players? I think it's interesting, um, and I think it circles back to what we touched on earlier, which is: Are they trying to go? for the new era of Italian football? Are they trying to do something out of the box and different? Whether that works or not, is that what they're trying to do? Yeah. I think there's the, the, when you look at Anthony Robertson and Matty Cash, you're probably seeing the the kind of the, the incomings there of, of this. I mean, it's, it's already there anyway. The players, they sign like Liao and Paqueta, they're, they're already on that. So they are coherent with that money ball approach. To young fullbacks, Anthony Robinson, for anyone who has the kind of the wise scout metrics, everyone knows brilliant ball carrier. Um, we'll we'll run all day with it. Whether he's the best defender or not, 
Yep, another question. But he'll run all day with the ball and he's absolutely rapid. Uh, Matty Cash is a, an absolute engine on the right-hand side. He's a great tackler. He's a full-action player. They're very similar profiles to me. You know, yeah, Anthony Robinson's a little bit quicker. But both of them are very, very big engines up and down the flanks. And I think that points to a, a strategy, at least. Um, Jeff Hendrick, I don't know if that's paper talk or not. But again, to give Jeff Hendrick his credit, I could see a lot of clubs in England below that bottom 10 of the Premier League. My team, Sheffield United, other teams like that, being very interested because he's an all-action box-to-box midfielder. You know, he puts his foot in, he runs with the ball forwards, he drives forwards, he can tackle, he can pass. You know, none of them at a high, high level, but he sets the tone for his team. Whenever you see Burnley play, generally they play well when Jeff Hendrick plays well, or did for a while. Um, And I think that these are interesting profiles of players because they're very energetic, very dynamic in what they do. And they're British, which is really interesting because British core at the minute is very much physical and off the ball. I think that's where we're excelling at in producing players like that. You know, young guys, yes, they're a little bit more technical, but... A lot of that championship to lower Premier League culture is about physicality and being big and strong and athletic, that British way still. So I yeah. think that's a really interesting thing that they're doing in terms of maybe moving away from that Italian model. Mm, I think, it, like we say, we don't know whether it's paper talk or what it is. Um, I mean, it would surprise me. It could potentially be a situation where it's a very specialist signing to fill a very special type of role. You might add depth to the squad. It could be one of many reasons, and I think it's hard to kind of gauge from the outside. But I think in terms of the the chat about British talent, I think it's a really interesting one. I think there's a lot of young British players coming through now who have grown up in in a different... I think the English system's moved on a lot, and I think Jaden Sancho's shown that the English players can offer something slightly different to what what is out there um, in terms of some of the raw attributes they have. And I think they're kind of attributes that are missing in other systems and other development models that clubs have had and I think that's why England's starting to be somewhere I think America's the same where clubs are looking at it as you know and I would say a non-traditional market like it wouldn't be a traditional market for Milan to go and pick up a player from the league they've done in England with you know with Maddie Cash and obviously Robinson so I think it's really interesting that again it's another kind of micro trend you see in football and I'll just be interested to see if it continues and especially how those guys bet in. No, I think I think it is very interesting. And I think what Jay speaks to there is that maybe they are changing. The, you know, you think about Italian football, we've always associated with either you get two types. So maybe that type, you know, is is, is on is going to come back again, that all-action midfield. Who's not the most great and not perfect technically, but as someone who wins the ball, gives it to the people who matter. And maybe those, you know, obviously Sandro Tonali has been produced in recent times. He's a fairly good player, but he's a bit more, bit more robust than I'd say. But like those PLO types, you know, that lovely, you know, that lovely six. Maybe those types are going, you know, going to go out the Italian game because the, the the focus will be becoming more on it. I think, the, the, especially in the Champions League as well, when they, they you know, when they tend to play English teams and German teams, the the, the pace and the physicality frighten Italian teams. The, you know, the pace of the game, especially, I think. Maybe yeah, maybe they are looking at England as a you know British football as a, as a place where you can get that value because we produce a lot of players like that. As you say, Jaden Sancho is about the particular type that we don't have in Germany because they obviously produce a lot of what they call street footballers who can solve problems and obviously you know, break teams down. And I think Germany produced too many what they call efficient robots in terms of yeah, tactically smart and passing. And I think in Italy... I, 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 I point, but you've made it a lot more eloquently. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, but they've made, they, and I think Italian football maybe is looking to sort of become maybe go back to the past because they, you know, the, the Italian teams are the, you know, the eighties are very robust, strong, workmanlike teams. Obviously, they had a bit of quality. They've always had your bad shows and you know, your dub heroes and people like that. But they were always found from that that hard work. And maybe I think maybe they're looking to go back there and get more energy in the side. Jeff Hendrick, you know, I think he's a good player. I think it'd be a bit odd for him to play to AC Milan. You know, I think you know, <laughs> I wouldn't say he's quite the Luther Blissett of AC Milan. Obviously, that's a famous mistake <laughs> AC Milan made down the years. And you know, but they, obviously Ray Wilkins played for AC Milan. David Beckham and people like that. So it'd be very interesting, and it is inter- been interesting to see them linked uh, so intrinsically with all these, you know, these English players. I think with the An- Anthony Robinson it was very interesting in January. It's a shame that didn't come off for him. That would have been a fantastic move for him. But overall, yeah, I think that I think you know that'll end our question and answers part. And I think this week's been very interesting. We'll announce on Twitter which team are doing next week. I think that you know, hopefully, people enjoy what we've done today. Hopefully, you know, if any, anyone has any suggestions of what we could add or subtract, maybe they could tell us. But any part and thoughts, guys, before I do my little Erigo Saki quote? Uh, no, no, no. I think that was really good. Um, you know, no, no parting thoughts on AC Milan, but people go to the Market Insights Twitter. Um, we have a guest blog from Andy Watson, um, who's quite prominent on Twitter. It's a really good blog about kind of how promotion from League One to the Championship affects your team's metrics. Um, and he's going to expand on that as well. He, he's, he's very interested in the topic, so he's going to write another one that we can put on in the, you know, this is good exposure for Andy because he's he's wrote a really good piece but didn't have nowhere to host it so he kindly asked us if we would so I would direct your attention to that and it's been a we're going to have another couple of blogs coming out recently as well in the next week or so so please do go to it because we're we're quite busy at the minute we've just signed up two new clubs in the last week um, at Market Insights so uh, it's quite an exciting time and we're going to try and produce some content that might yeah, be interesting for when the uh, the new Premier League season starts um, this weekend this week coming. Uh, as a Sheffield United fan I'm quite excited and looking forward to that so maybe next week on the pod you won't shut me up about a topic that's run related to the podcast uh, I think I can maybe segue into it I think it would be a lovely little fairy tale if Ragnik would go to the club that is from all from everything I've read Rigo Saatchi is his uh, idol for the quote that you're about to mention as Ragnik was named the uh Professor coach or whatever they called him after the the ZDF interview. So I'll uh, segue you into that, mate. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously I'm not looking forward to the Premier League comeback as an Everton fan. But what I will say is market insights, obviously there's there's ten of us now and obviously the six original people, none of us have ever, you know, played professional football. Luke obviously does play professional football, but Rigo Saki obviously was a professional footballer. And he once said, and this is a very famous quote, and I think it applies that you don't know that he said about not playing professional football before he went into management. I never realised that in order to become a jockey that you had to be a horse first. As I said before the podcast, you are unfortunately a horse, Luke. But, you know, on that note, you know, that is what we're all about, is that we obviously have, you know, we are about putting our insights into the game and about, find, you know, helping clubs with recruitment. I think we, we've been doing that. And I think we've got some exciting times ahead. Keep your eye out on the Twitter and on the website for more. And thank you for joining us. Please subscribe. Thank you.